This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Yik. It's a very, very special Friday afternoon today. First of all, I've got my co-host, Dr. George Lee, in the studio with me. How are you, George? I'm very good. Obviously, a public holiday and eager to be here. And why else is it special, George? <laughs> That's right, of course. it's uh, Well, there are two reasons why it's special. We're all eagerly awaiting for tomorrow. And then that's, uh, you know, I think the whole nation is holding our breath and then already eager to get your finger inked and then right. actually make that crossed, uh, you know, across the nation. Posting it on all your social media platforms, <laughs> I'm sure. And uh, also, I, hear, I hear the roads are, are packed, which mm, is a good sign that people is, are yeah. going back to their homes. I'm sure. I hope the turnout will be excellent tomorrow. Yes. I hear that tomorrow from 6pm onwards, BFM is going to cover this live until the very last moment up to 2am. Is that yes, correct? Yes, it's battle for Malaysia Absolutely. and it's our battle for Malaysia, right? So yeah. our coverage, as you're right, 6pm um, onwards, all the way through the night, we'll be bringing you the news, the breaking results, speaking to analysts, and mm -hmm. breaking down things as they happen. And there's a debut of this live on, uh, you know, on all these um, you know, visually as well. Yes, unfortunately for me at least, I've <laughs> only ever been comfortable on radio, but you can now watch our live video stream for Indeed. the first time, either through our website, on our YouTube and Facebook channels or on our BFM app, of See. course, which you should definitely download. So thanks, George, for selling that for of us. Of course, <laughs> you know, I get paid very well for things like that. <laughs> which is not at all. However, you know, obviously, while everybody's waiting and when you st get stuck in a traffic jam, remember the month of November, actually, usually, classically, it's for men's health. And, you know, of course, um, the news about the um, general elections, everything has overshadowed men's health. But we would like to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about men's health, especially prostate cancer. Absolutely. And, you know, George, when it comes to cancer, any kind of cancer, we always hear the messaging being that early is very important. Early diagnosis, mm -hmm. early screening, um, get treated early. Um, but what I want to understand is, um, you know, can we sort of dive deeper into that? Mm -hmm. How early is early? Indeed. Um, can, how do we convince people that it does make a difference to their outcomes, yeah. to how well the disease will respond to treatment, to survival um, and quality of life, importantly? So joining us today to look at those aspects for prostate cancer is consultant clinical oncologist Dr. Jennifer Leong. Um, we're going to uh, be looking at uh, sort of three areas, all intertwined, of course. Early genetic testing, early treatment, uh, whether it's for localised or um, prostate cancer that has spread, and early intensification of hormone treatment. Dr. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited to yes. be here. Yeah. And, in, uh, person. Yes. <laughs> in person. For the first time, yeah. So, this show is part of a health education initiative brought to you by Johnson & Johnson Malaysia. And if you have questions, what a perfect time to ask them to either George or to Dr. Jennifer. You can call us at 03-777-32900. You can also WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. That can be a text message or a voice note. So um, can I kick this off with that idea of um, why early diagnosis is important? Because 
at the same time, you kind of hear people saying that prostate cancer is one of the diseases that progresses very slowly, develops slowly. So why is early diagnosis still important? And what difference would it make to somebody who has been diagnosed? This is such an important question for us to answer. Just like many other cancers, when we have a patient who presents with an early stage when the cancer is diagnosed, we know that that means that they have a better prognosis. And prognosis essentially means survival outcome. So for a patient who presents with very early stage of prostate cancer, their five-year survival rate can go up to as high as 90%. Mm. And someone who has got a stage 4 prostate cancer or the disease has spread elsewhere, such as the bones or the liver, the prognosis can, the five-year survival rate can actually drop to about 30%. Mm. So we can see that the earlier the stage when the cancer is diagnosed, then the better the survival outcome is for the patient because mm. essentially you're looking at smaller tumour burden or disease burden and also then the treatment will essentially be for cure. Can you explain to me, either one of you, what mm-hmm. exactly does five-year survival and then you talk about these percentages, mm-hmm. what does that actually mean? So when we say if like someone have got a five-year survival rate of 90%, so it means that in five years, someone with a similar cancer characteristic, say for example, stage one, mm-hmm. has got a 90, 90 out of 100 men would then be able to go on to live a fulfilling life for five years without succumbing to their cancer or their mm. illness. So someone who has got a five-year survival rate of 30% means that only 30 out of, or three out of 10 men will be able to make it through five years mm-hmm. without actually um, having the cancer come back, or, you know, dying from the cancer. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, is it true that that is used as a benchmark of almost uh, describing a cure? I mean, you know, obviously everyone's talking about cure and then when you go beyond five years of surviving the disease, would you be considered as close to cure as possible? You know what, George, that's also an excellent question. We get asked a lot. So the thing is you want to say is after five years, the risk of the cancer recurrence mm-hmm. is significantly lower. But we always advise our patient to continue follow-up. Mm-hmm. So, But perhaps the intensity of the treatment then reduced mm-hmm. instead of coming to see us every three or six months mm-hmm. and probably we drop to about nine months or a year. But the key is to not uh, discontinue the follow-up. Of because course. we do have that small population of patients who can recur very much later uh, in the part of the disease, like yes. maybe after seven, eight mm-hmm. or ten years. But that's not so common once you pass your five-year mark. That's right. So cool. I tell my patient there's this milestone. So uh, lots of milestones in that's oncology. Right. Yes. We have the three years, yes. five years, and then seven and ten years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is where we really want to watch them closely, especially in the first three to five years. Indeed. Mm. Um, how do we get patients uh, in at this point then uh, so that they can achieve uh, these uh, the, these magical numbers that you've been talking about. Um, what are you seeing right now that gets men in for early diagnosis and what is not getting them in? You know, the contrast. Yeah, I think there's a lot of contributing factors. The most important one would be to educate Malaysians to actually go for their health checkups, mm-hmm. right? I think you agree with me, George. Um, a lot of my patients come in with raised PSA mm-hmm. and it's picked up during medical screening and of course on further questioning then or, or you know asking them about the symptoms they've got some uh, non-specific symptoms for like up to a year yes so I think it's also to educate the uh, first the frontliner like the general practitioners that when they do the health checks 
to them maybe in selected groups mm-hmm. to 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 put in a PSA or a um, tumor marker screening. Mm-hmm. Who are these selected groups? Um, ideally, uh, per the guidelines, it would be people who have uh, above fifty years old and above. Mm-hmm. Or those with high risk, like if they have got a family history, strong history of uh, um, cancers, mm-hmm. then we do want to also encourage them to get screened earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Incidentally, we got a you know a message on WhatsApp. Basically, a gentleman told um, you know uh, WhatsApp person said, "I'm 41 year old and found out that my prostate has enlarged uh, last year. Uh, it does slightly affect my urine flow. Now, how much of a chance will this turn into cancer? Oh, by the way, my highest PSA is 1.6. I guess." I'll probably take that answer. I mean, essentially, um, an enlarged prostate can't probably uh, emerge from the age of 40. And then so this gentleman began to have those sort of symptoms. Please be assured that an enlarged prostate is an aging process. It doesn't really progress to cancer, especially if you've got a PSA of 1.6. This is very assuring that if you get this continuously checked, the chances of cancerous changes will be very, very small, which is what Dr. Leong uh, highlighted earlier. On and then this gentleman obviously falls into that minority of people who actually actively, um, you know, do screening. Jennifer, I mean, recently we had this statistic showing that Malaysia has got um, 60% of men presented with prostate cancer in late stages, which is a very sad statistic. Earlier on, you highlighted that if you present early, your chances of five-year survival is 90% in contrast to 30%, a vast majority of people who are in that category. I understand that in recent years, there are lots and lots of advancements in you know, oncology especially. Would you like to perhaps give us a bit of snippet about what sort of things available for people in that category? Because it's quite sad to have two-thirds of the general population in Malaysia like that. Yeah, you know what, George? I think, sadly, the statistics or the latest cancer registry is still showing many cancers. Malaysians are still presenting two-thirds, like mm-hmm. you've mentioned, in either stage three or stage four disease. Yes. Yeah. So um, I think firstly is of course to increase the awareness um, between you know community and also healthcare practitioners when they go over to get their medical checkup. I have patients who come to see me and I advocate health screening to their family members yes. to get their daughters, you know, to get good, get do a mammogram and things like that. Mm-hmm. So all of us have a role to play. But essentially, when it comes to the treatment, we're very exciting now in oncology. It's an era of precision medicine. Right. Yeah. So I think sometimes what stops them from coming early, even though there are some signs and symptoms, mm-hmm. is that they're, they're worried, there's fear that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if I knew that I have cancer, it just means chemotherapy. Yes. Yeah. Or yeah. they have seen their loved one gone through it and uh, maybe does not come up with better experience. So I think it's important for us to know that there are many options out there mm-hmm. to just go beyond chemotherapy. So not all cancers require chemotherapy and there are so so you know new new technologies like targeted therapies that's out there as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Can I um get you to give us a quick glimpse of what precision medicine actually means, what it is before we go for a break and you know we can come back and delve deeper into that. But that term precision medicine, what exactly can you achieve with it? So we do find that a lot of patients, when they are diagnosed with cancer, 
um, they have a specific molecular imprint, so which means that some of them have genetic alterations that can lead. So there is a part of their protein that is not functioning well, mm-hmm. and they continue to just, uh, um, you know, like uh, there's a switch on button to this uh, protein and it continues to uh, uh, cause the cell to grow and grow and become a tumour. So if you find out that there is such signalling in the patient, and this usually is from sending um, the tumour to the lab to get tested, and then you can actually offer treatment that are targeted to this uh, uh, molecular or this genetic mutation. Mm-hmm. Just almost like a bespoke treatment specifically. That's right. So it's very individualised. Right. Okay. I'm sure we're all really eager to hear more about it after the break. Yeah. Yes, um, but call us with your questions if you'd like to. Uh, you know, if you have a specific situation, just like our listener earlier, that you'd like to get some clarity on, you can call us at 0377332900, WhatsApp, um, a text message or a voice note to 018-789-8899. We have Dr. Jennifer Leong, consultant clinical oncologist in the studio, together with my co-host, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist. Two perfect people to talk about prostate Indeed. cancer. One surgical, one medical. Exactly. You know, what else can you ask for? An exactly. A- one-stop centre indeed, right here. Uh, so it's sort of an open clinic as well. Uh, so yes, uh, again, 0377332900 to call. WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, my co-host, Dr. George Lee, and our guest, consultant clinical oncologist, Dr. Jennifer Leong. Surprise, surprise, we're not talking about the elections. Yeah, well, okay. We, well, we might <laughs> offer you a free PSA test if you show us your free income. Okay, we'll look for George for That's that. That's a fantastic idea. That is a fantastic idea because we are encouraging people to come forward, exactly. aren't we? For... And encouraging people to vote. Yes, you know, exactly. the best of both worlds. Two birds with one stone. Indeed. We're discussing prostate cancer today. Uh, it's the month of November, Men's Health Awareness Month. We really want to shine, continue shining the spotlight on prostate cancer, as George has pointed out. Um, what was the percentage of men? Uh, it's about two-thirds of men, or in fact, um, a bit surprised that even in other cancers in Malaysia, mm. we're really lagging behind many, many neighbouring countries when it comes to this um, statistics. Yeah, and so that's two-thirds of men being diagnosed with prostate cancer at the late stages, and we know that that affects your five-year five survival rate. Uh, and you know how well your disease will respond to the treatments. We left off talking about. Um, oh, but uh, before I forget, do call us zero three double seven double three two nine hundred with your questions, or you can WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Anything about prostate cancer? We left off talking about the advent of precision medicine, bespoke medicine, almost mm-hmm. in a way, right? That you can pinpoint. Um, people who have certain genetic alterations that uh, would be causing their tumours to grow, the, the cancer to spread. And you can then, um, and I presume uh, it, Dr. Jennifer is going to give a much better explanation, tailors treatments that can target those genetic alterations. But how do you find? Uh, and first of all, actually, would every man um, who has prostate cancer um, have a particular genetic alteration? And how do you identify them? Yes, thank you for the question. So, firstly, we are trying to advocate more and more genetic testing Mm -hmm. in men diagnosed with prostate cancer. We know that we've heard genetic testing over and over when it comes to patients diagnosed with breast cancer, Mm. ovarian cancer, but I think it's not as widely publicised for Mm -hmm. prostate cancer. So unfair. (laughs) 
<laughs> you need, so, you see, need the Angelina Jolie kind of. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, that's why we're here, George. Indeed. So, two out of ten men are found to actually have a genetic mutation. Mm. Um, and the most common gene that we find are like BRCA1 or 2, uh, which can be present in breast and ovarian cancer as well, and an ATM gene. So by knowing or teasing out these men who have this genetic mutation, you already know that they're going to have a more aggressive disease. Mm -hmm. So their median survival is three years compared to men who does not have this mutation, which mm. is six years. So it's half of that. And so when we know this mutation in this man, it can also allow us to offer them more niche treatment, the bespoke treatment, with uh, targeted treatments such as PARP inhibitors, mm -hmm. which can prolong their survival mm -hmm. and essentially letting them have a meaningful life with their loved ones. So mm -hmm. can you increase that if survival is halved? Can you bring it back to par? You can actually improve their survival beyond three years. And of course, um, nothing is you know set in stone. There's a lot of other factors. But the key is to actually know what your patient have what a kind of genetic mutation, then you can go forward and discuss that in your clinic and offer, the, offer them the best first choice treatment. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like you said, in um, breast cancer treatment, it's almost second nature, right? I mean, when patients present it to yes. you, they get these kind of uh, mapping and then from there, you just worked out what is the, the, appropriate, yeah, the appropriate treatment and then reduces the side effects, enhances the efficacy. Why isn't why is prostate cancer lagging in this sense? I think firstly, it's still very new in the idea of, you know, doing genetic testing. And there's a lot of implications. So when we were to, as oncologists, we are the mainstreamers. So we actually um, present the idea because of the trust you have with your patient. Right. So you cannot present that uh, um, idea to them. Um, but it also has implication to their family members and mm -hmm. their children. Mm -hmm. So if they get tested to have a certain mutation, mm -hmm. it can have a profound impact in that the family may then need to be tested. Mm -hmm. So we then refer them to a geneticist mm -hmm. to then further do a pre-test counselling. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all very new in the concept. Mm -hmm. But if you make sense while you're doing this test mm -hmm. and tell them there's a relevant therapy for you yeah. that can essentially prolong your, your survival, mm -hmm. then a lot of them will be willing to take on the test. Yes. Yeah, okay. Shoy, I, I think I probably have another opinion that um, why genetic uh, testing and these kind of cutting edge investigation is not carried out for prostate cancer in comparison with breast cancer. You, you highlighted the show initially when you opened the show saying that prostate cancer has this impression that it's slow growing and it, it's going to affect all men and then you're really not going to be suffering so much. But contrary to common beliefs, that's not that's the right. case, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that when you highlighted that 30% of men only survive beyond five years, that means 70% of men will die within the first five years of diagnosis. And the final journey of their palliative care, it's actually quite debilitating as well, right? I mean, essentially, these advancements that can be proposed for them can change their journey of care prolong their life and also reduce their morbidity. Is that correct? That's right. I think when we looked at it, um, at the cost factor, and you know, cost is always an important factor. In fact, it's the limiting, a limiting factor in a lot of patients uh, from receiving the best care forward. Um, but there are a lot of hidden costs that people don't see. Mm. 
So the cost of genetic testing and new targeted therapy, but you were to add on the cost of hospitalization, and you say as the disease progress, and then they will need palliative care, mm -hmm. multiple admissions for pain control and all that. So essentially, it's better to treat the disease correctly and early on mm -hmm. than to have all these, and also the time away from work. Indeed, you won't be you won't be able to work. So there's lots of productivity. Yeah, so I think, you know, that impression of this is a slow progressing disease and then it's hopeless needs to be altered with shows like this. Mm. So we want to really, um, you know, dispel that as a, as a myth, right? But um, coming back to genetic testing, is it available um, widely for people to be able to access them? Yes, it's available in both the private and public hospitals. And Cancer Research Malaysia is doing a fantastic job as well. So you can go to the website of CRM or Cancer Research Malaysia, Develop uh, Geneticists, and of course speak to your doctors about it and they'll be able to get you uh, an access to mm -hmm. one of them. If you turn out to be one, uh, two in uh, ten of these uh, individuals who has got the um, specific genetic mutation... What specific medication will be offered? Um, will they be offered, and what sort of implication would it have on them? So currently, if they have failed the first line, the novel hormonal agent um, that we prescribe. So these are for men who have already um, progressed on on the first line hormones. So we know for a lot of stage four prostate cancer patients, they will be initially sensitive to hormonal blockade. Mm -hmm. So when they are no longer uh, responding to it, we then switch to a different type of therapy. Mm -hmm. And upon failure of that, then there is the uh, introduction of this drug called PARP inhibitors. Right. Yeah. And so then you can actually, it's an oral treatment. It's very easy. There's actually no need to go to the daycare. They can continue to, you know, go travel or if they're working and things mm -hmm. like that. And the side effects is generally very tolerable. Right, okay. Why not start on that immediately rather than the first and the... And wait the until you become resistant. What a great question, you know? Yes. Yeah. So we're always... So there's always evidence when we, we propose drugs or when we propose treatment to patient. We have to be backed up by clinical trials and evidence from it. So currently, we are actually uh, going into the venture of uh, the hormone-sensitive prostate cancer landscape mm -hmm. for this group of drugs. Mm -hmm. So we're waiting data from that. Mm -hmm. So Currently, we have it for the hormone-resistant prostate cancer because these are the group of men whose median survival is really poor. Mm -hmm. When you put on them on another novel hormonal agent, mm -hmm. it's as low as three months. Okay. I mean, just for the benefit of listeners out there, I mean, you mentioned about hormonal treatment and novel hormonal treatments. I understand that these are something that has really emerged, um, you know, in the landscape of medical treatment for prostate cancer in the last decade or so. Can you elaborate a little bit what does it mean by by home, conventional hormonal treatment and novel hormonal treatment? Yeah, so one, is, that's a really good question. Sometimes we get so scientific about this. Mm -hmm. So like when a patient is diagnosed with prostate cancer, um, the doctors may tell them you need an injection. So essentially, this is a hormonal blockade. It's just to um, reduce the hormonal supply or the testosterone that is essentially going to induce the tumour growth, mm -hmm. right? And so come to a point when this no longer works. And how do we know, George? It's because we monitor their PSA. Mm -hmm. So PSA is a very sensitive tool for us to monitor the disease um, control. So when that goes up um, and there is like a trend of it going up in two to three readings, 
And then that's when we say the patient is no longer sensitive to the initial treatment, the hormonal, say, injection. So that's where we can introduce a novel hormonal agent into the picture. One that's different from the first. Yes, so the mechanism is different because all cancer cells are really smart. After a while, they do become resistant to the current treatment you're going. So how I tell my patient is that they are like policemen and they are roadblocks. Mm -hmm. So after a while, if you know the policeman's always there when you drive to work at the federal highway, they're going to go through a different way, right? Um, Bypassing the federal highway. So so cancer cells are smart like that. So after a while, you start noticing that, you know, patient doesn't respond anymore after two or three years. And that's when you become more alert and Mm -hmm. you start introducing new treatment. So you put in... uh, other roadblocks where they're yes. taking their detours. That's right. And you try to do that without them realising it. And okay. so then, yeah. yeah, but then when those two have failed and you're introducing the targeted therapies like the PARP inhibitors, that's a completely different strategy altogether. You're not doing roadblocks anymore. You're taking an MRT. <laughs> Yes. So then you are now targeting like a, you know a more bespoke roadblock, right? So you're targeting the tumor signaling pathway. So you're going really into the molecular level. Yeah, and this is all very interesting because we've seen that when you target the right target, then I've got another um, 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 example for my patients, got lots in my clinic, right. so that if you find the right door and mm-hmm. then you have the key for it, right. and the key is the drug, okay. so you can essentially lock it up and then the tumour doesn't proliferate. Because right. I think sometimes in the clinic, you've just got to be really simplistic mm-hmm. to get them to understand you know, what's the concept of this targeted therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. you, if you present those things, I will tell you, I don't know know anything about evading, um, you know, police roadblocks because I don't drink and drive at all. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point, That's George. right, yeah. yeah. Um, we, you know, even with the advent of genetic testing and what you can identify and now you can present like, you know, first line and we can continue to just really keep focusing on it. Do you still find that there is a delay though? Uh, are there still barriers for patients going from the testing stage to accessing all these treatments? Yes, and I think that is uh, a lot of factors that contribute to it. As we have seen, statistics have shown 60% is still presenting late stage. Mm. So I think one would be to um, encourage men to come over if they have signs and symptoms, to speak to their healthcare professionals, you know, to their friends even. And if you have friends or family that's undergoing some you know, symptoms that's nagging and not going mm-hmm. away, is to really encourage them to go and see doctors early. Yes. Yeah, because a lot of the time it's nothing um, sinister. Yes. But you could pick up something and you could potentially save someone's lives if you detect cancer early. Mm. Yeah. And there's the fear of actually knowing it's cancer. Like I say, the fear and stigma. I think but the stigma that fear cancer. probably will diminish once you know that there's so many options out there yeah. for patients. And then, you know, and, you know, because the limelight perhaps for the last decade is, you know, people like Lee Shenlong presented with early stage prostate cancer and then they're treated with cutting edge, space age, uh, robotic surgery. However, for those, you know, two thirds of men presented late you know, shows like this will highlight that there are other options such as, um, you know, targeted therapy and bespoke therapy that we can have. And also all these uh, novel hormonal therapy, which it doesn't mean doom and gloom, right? Yes. And uh, picking up on surgery, I'd like to come back to that and look at, you know, we we are talking about space age stuff here, Mm -hmm. but 
you uh, mentioned chemotherapy earlier, Dr. Jennifer. You've mentioned surgery, George. Mm -hmm. Where are they in the picture mm -hmm. of uh, prostate cancer treatment? We'll come back and look at that. Indeed. But... Um, we want to hear from you. Um, get your questions in for either Dr. Jennifer Leong, consultant clinical oncologist, or my co-host, George, clinical urologist. Um, you can call us at 0377332900. WhatsApp us at 018789 Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik, and my co-host, Dr. George Lee. Better, fitter ministers is what we mm, hope to see. Indeed. <laughs> After the elections, um, we have in the studio with us our guest, consultant clinical oncologist, Dr. Jennifer Leong. We're discussing prostate cancer. How early is early and why is it important? I think if that message hasn't been driven home already, Listen to our show again when you download the podcast. Dr. Jennifer has really made the case for um, early uh, diagnosis through, you know, um, going for frequent medical checkups um, and the importance of bringing in genetic testing because we now know that two out of 10 men uh, have specific genetic mutations that, um, you know, can be targeted through uh, new um, therapies uh, in this sort of approach called precision medicine. So it is not doom and gloom. Um, it's not um, what we used to think uh, or associate with late stage or aggressive prostate cancers. Um, call us with your questions 0377332900 or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. I um, want to come back to uh, some more basic things perhaps. Um, where does surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy come in? Are they still part of the arsenal? I'll start with the surgery, right? I mean, if you're lucky enough, like someone like Li Shenlong, who actually had a PSA detected that was high, undergo a biopsy, and the biopsy uh, confirmed cancer, and the staging process showed that is stage one or two, organ confined, then you're lucky enough for a 90% cure rate of that five-year survival. However, sometimes, uh, despite your best effort of cutting-edge surgery, you still have some residual tumour that's left behind. And these are the people who actually have failure after this surgery. And that's when, you know, uh, Jennifer comes in to help me, you know, to send patients in. So we talked about people who presented late. We also have a large number of people who perhaps initially thought to be cured, but later on have recurrences. And that's when, you know, she comes in and then to see where the early intervention would help. Is that true? That's right. That's absolutely right. So <clears throat> in the cases where they have, uh, we call it biochemical recurrence, where the PSA starts to rise again, then we offer them radiotherapy at this point to, we call it a salvage radiotherapy. And again, just like systemic treatments, we have also made so much advancement in our radiotherapy techniques. There are newer and newer machines and with um, very precise and high accuracy and that you can ensure that the patient has minimal side effects. So radiotherapy can come in two forms. One would be like post-surgery, that what Josh has said, the PSA starts to climb up, come over to see us. The other would be patients who maybe are medically unfit mm -hmm. to undergo surgery at an early stage, you know, someone with a lot of uh, 
uh, medical illnesses like uh, heart problems, would be won't be able to go undergo surgery safely. That's when we can offer them a radical radiotherapy, mm-hmm. and this is usually done over four weeks duration. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is there still fear about undergoing surgery or radiotherapy? Well. The surgery, um, main complications, you'll you'll be looking at um, incontinence of urine and also erectile dysfunction. However, the advancements of precision, kind of like robotic surgery, that is a whole idea that you maximize your cancer eradication and minimize the rates of erectile dysfunction and the incontinence. And that's because um, of affecting the surrounding areas. That's that right. right. You know, if you imagine the prostate itself in close proximity to neurovascular bundles, which supply the um, integrity of your um, sphincter muscles mm-hmm. and also the erectile tissues. And then if that is damaged, then obviously there are adverse consequences. However, if the precision can be achieved with 3D visualizations via robots, then those things will be minimized. Mm. And what about radiotherapy? Is there still a fear over that? So the radiotherapy side effects are usually something more acute. Like they could be having a little bit, we prepare the patient that they may have a little bit of a tummy discomfort or tummy upset. So may present with a bit of loose stool. And the, that's because the radiation actually does affect a little bit of the bowels. And also they then may need to increase um, their frequency of going to the toilet to, mm-hmm. to, to pass urine. But this usually are temporary because when we plan a radiotherapy plan for the patient, we have got what we call a dose constraint mm-hmm. to, 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 to these organs like the bladder and the mm. bowels. Mm-hmm. And so we make sure that it's safely delivered. And every day when the patients undergoing treatment, there's actually an image verification to ensure mm. that we do not miss the target. Mm. So one important rule is not to miss the target and number two is not to cause harm to the surrounding structures. So minimising collateral damages. Yeah. Yeah. What about chemotherapy? So chemotherapy comes in much later, currently at uh, advanced prostate cancer landscape. Mm-hmm. So when a patient presents with a very heavy disease burden, and you do want to get uh, the tumour shrinkage fast. For example, someone who may be presenting to the liver with extensive disease to the liver. So you're talking about the cancer that has spread beyond spread the prostate. and very extensive ones. And also the caveat is the patient has to be fit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of these patients, if they are not fit for chemo, and that is not an option. Mm-hmm. Okay. Shall we have a um, caller who is a bit shy to go on air? You know, why be shy? Dr. George doesn't bite. Okay. Mr. Wang wants to know he passes half a bucket of urine every day. Is his prostate cancer? Mr. Wang, it depends on how big your bucket is, right? I guess. <laughs> a, a typical person probably will pass about 1.5 litres of urine per day. And then I think, you know, if you measure it that way, you probably will realise that it's actually quite normal. However, if you pass a lot more than that, it's a condition called polyuria and then essentially that can be due to diabetes and also um, other conditions, hormonal conditions and then um, it's nothing to do with prostate cancer at all. So be assured that you know prostate cancer doesn't really present like that. Mm, but 1.5 litres that's per right. day is okay, that That's average, right. Yeah. So don't measure by buckets. Get a measurement in the bucket. Well, probably be a bit more accurate. I've got another one for you, George. Um, if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer 
uh, will an active sex life aggravate it? Oh, not at all, right? In fact, um, there are many, many studies to show that, in fact, in your prior younger days, actually have very active sex life, and then uh, the chances of getting prostate cancer in the future actually is um, is diminished. So, contrary to common belief that you know sex kind of like a is a guilty pleasure that has price to pay later on in the form of cancer, that is a definite myth. What's the link? Oh, what's the link? Actually, nobody knows. But uh, what the New England study actually published in um, um, a quite um, respectable journal to show that frequent ejaculation in younger days actually um, will reduce your um, uh, risk of prostate cancer by at least 25% and second when you're aging. Many people will say that that actually is a artifactual findings because if you have more active sex life, you're probably by definition more healthy anyway in your mm. younger days. And some people believe that they may be kind of like uh, infections, infections, um, uh, uh, kind of materials inside the prostate, just like the old days when people were suspecting um, HPV causing cervical cancers and eventually that kind of unveiled. And then there are many, many studies that are actually looking into that. I see. I want to come back to um, looking at this uh, arsenal that you have now and how you know, you can layer them or, or level up, right? Um, we've got this and if that doesn't work, we've got that. And sort of you kind of don't really run out of options um, you know, as much as, as uh, we used to perhaps. But does that is that daunting for patients, Dr. Jennifer, when they kind of have to prepare themselves, this might work or might not work. Then I have to steal myself for another conversation again and weigh the pros and cons. Right? How, what are you hearing from patients every time you have to have that conversation with them? Uh, it doesn't get easier, you know. Mm. Even with years of experience, um, having to break the news of a cancer diagnosis. And often we leave it to the job of oncologists <laughs> yes. to do it. Uh, so, so, you know, when a patient walks in with their family members, this um, you, you can see it across your face, a lot of anxiety, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of time, the first consultation, uh, nothing much registered clinically. Yes. It's really about will I survive this cancer? Will I be able to see my children grow up? Because... Mm-hmm. Contrary to what we believe, prostate cancer is happening in younger men these days, not just in elderly. So I think it's always good to to get to know your patient Mm -hmm. and to make them feel like they are part of the decision-making process. So it's no longer like very patriarchal where, you know, I'm the doctor, I'm talking and, you know, you're listening. So if if your treatment makes sense and you explained... um, in depth on why you choose this treatment for them and reassure them, mm-hmm. then they are likely to be compliant to mm-hmm. it. And yeah. they will also let you know when they don't feel well mm-hmm. early. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. does fatigue set in after going through several cycles? Yes. And, you know? So somehow um, with more treatment and also partly because of the disease itself, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of prostate cancer, when they do spread, they almost always spread to the bones. Mm. And so fatigue can come from it, either from the treatment or from just essentially the blood counts being low. They mm-hmm. can also be fatigued. So it is about trying to work around it and, you know, advising them how to change, maybe going for exercise and things like that. Mm. Yeah. So in, in, in small minor steps 
to then how to improve this this fatigue. Yeah. And speaking of exercise, George, a yes. question for you. Yes, hi. I have a question ah. for Dr. George. Does regular long-distance cycling for a man cause a higher propensity for prostate cancer? The answer is absolutely no. So if you actually look at um, you know cycling with these hard saddles kind of in your perineum, it's more actually at risk of getting prostatitis, uh, which is a inflammation of prostate. And you can always overcome that with uh, prostate-friendly saddles. And I'm sure you can cycle, you know, from strength to strength, really. Yeah. <laughs> there is prostate-friendly saddles. That's right. More paddings uh, where it, uh, it matters. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Shall we, I mean, I like the questions that you highlighted about, you know, the hard job Jennifer has always kind of like, you know, disclosing uh, obviously bad news and breaking bad news. However, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. I mean, earlier on, we highlighted that two-thirds of uh, prostate cancer sufferers presented late. And then we also highlighted that the current form of treatment is the conventional hormonal treatment, which will have a very limited time span in its uh, efficacy. And eventually we need to go through a second bad news to say that, you know, the cancer probably has recurred for a lot of... Yeah. And in fact, actually, what is that time frame typically? Yeah. What is that time frame that you're looking at? I think it definitely this is individualised, but essentially we're looking at a mean time of around about one and a half years mm -hmm. to two years yeah. before we see a lot of treatments starting to develop resistance. But sometimes when we say that to patients and they do get really quite anxious, yes. because it's one and a half years, so why is my cancer not coming back? So it's just not to scare the patient away. Yeah, I mean, so I use the scenario, I use the kind of like uh, descriptions of this is a fire that I'm using paper just to cover it. Eventually the fire will win. So I'm not obviously as creative <laughs> as talking about the roadblocks. However, are there new... Um, studies that show that we, because the whole theme of today is talking about early diagnosis, early interventions, are there um, kind of like more recent studies to show that if we give the patients the, the stronger treatments such as early um, chemotherapy, for example, or early novel hormonal treatment, then they're going to prolong that one and a half year period and also have a better quality of life so that they don't get into problems of fractured bones, anemia and difficulty in passing and those complications. Yeah. That, that's also a fantastic question, George. So we do have uh, newer drugs that we can actually use upfront. So on the detection that the cancer has then spread beyond the prostate, right? So you can actually combine the hormonal injection with a novel hormonal agent rather than to wait later. So we don't want to bring out our best weapon towards the end. Mm. So we have newer hormonal agents that we can use and data have shown that it has improved survival outcomes. And then what you're doing is, like George said, you're just putting off the fire for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. So the patient has a longer period before, you know, eventually the cancer may come back, but you're just giving them a longer, more meaningful life. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer, problems. one of the problems I face is that, you know, we use a conventional treatment. And then by the time that the patient requires the uh, next line treatment, they're actually getting quite ill. They're not fit for the treatment. So while they are fit, I really think that those scientific data are so valuable. 
that we need to change the mindset that we need to wait until they're ill to go for the second yes. line. But we actually use the weapon much earlier on so that they have better quality of life and longer uh, longevity. So then is it a question of perhaps some patients don't want to have this sort of double dose right up front? Like I said before, I think the main limiting factor is the cost, right? So when the cancer advances, the, the treatment becomes more complex and unfortunately, the cost escalates significantly more. Mm. So a lot of patients, even if they have an insurance, um, they run out very fast from it. Mm-hmm. And because there's a lot of R&D goes into all this development of these new targeted therapies, um, with no biosimilar mm-hmm. generics that's available at the moment. So they become really expensive in the long term. Yeah. And they're to be used until disease progression. So I think the main uh, stumbling block for us here is cost. Yeah. And also, to some extent, fear. Because, you know, chemo is always perceived as that palliative last stage. But if you mention chemo way up front, of course that can scare some people off, right? Yeah, I think it's always finding the right moment, mm-hmm. the right time yes. to sort of like tell your patient. That's right. And But if chemo saves lives, yes. especially like you say, when they're much more fitter in the earlier disease trajectory, you do want to mm-hmm. mention it to them. And also knowledge as well, because obviously yeah. the more um, publications that support that particular theory, I'm sure many, many um, sufferers are willing to try that because whenever you are left with more options, obviously it's a um, it's a better way to make it more suitable for yourself, make it more bespoke for yourself. Yeah, I think the main thing is always the fear first. So a lot of my patients are very hesitant. When you mention chemo, you can see their face changed. They're no longer smiling at me. Mm-hmm. So, But, you know, after they've gone through the first cycle and yeah. second cycle, the main thing is to be there for them, to be there with them, to, to reassure them that you're going to be there if they hit a stumbling block. And they say it's actually not that bad as the fear. And you mentioned that these days, you know, instead of chemo, there are many um, treatment that comes in the form of tablets and then people just need to go to, you know, can carry on working. And then that, those will be the way forward, right? Mm. I think we just should maybe rebrand chemo, right? Give it a different name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just want to wrap up. We talked a lot also about education, awareness, um, going for your regular checkups and just sort of being in that space, you know, already where you are sensitive and alert. Like like our listener, right, who was only 41 and mm-hmm. he was already sort of so aware of aware. his body symptoms and changes. Um you know, we can talk so much about education, though. We can talk so much about awareness, but um, what's really going to get men through the doors, Dr. Jennifer? The <laughs> free food. The free food. I have a view that uh, men and women's health are very different. If you come up with all these uh, fear factors that are pushing men to have screening to say, if you don't do this, you're going to die. And then I think that is a narrative that's not necessarily going to work for men. So the push factor is not necessarily the key. And I really think the pull factor is really the key. So apart from free food <laughs> to, to get you to get your PSA checked, <laughs> I really think that the pull factor will be, um, you know, better um, quality of life later and how you entice men 
to realize that if they really invest in themselves, just like they invest looking after their cars, their cars can carry on running for many, many years. And then so I think it, it, the language needs to be very different rather than, you know, banging on the fact that if you don't look after yourself, you're going to die. All right. Ooh, okay. The Green car cliches. <laughs> yeah, the car cliches. Women tend to step forward and do it because of their children, because of the family, you know, things like that. So there are very different reasons for, you know, people going to get checked. But ultimately, it's, you know, what works. Mm. And just honing in that it's important to get detected early mm-hmm. and that it's not doomed. Mm-hmm. That it's not a death sentence that when you are detected with cancer, even at stage four, because there's just so much advancement in the treatment that people are living a very long, fulfilling life. And also, I think my main takeaway is also that assumption uh, that, you know, maybe I also wrongly put in our listeners' heads about prostate cancer being a slow-progressing disease, Mm. and that's really not true at all. It's slow only for one and a half years, remember. Mm. And then beyond that one and a half years, you need to face the the eventuality of complications of this cancer. So obviously, if you can avoid it altogether at early stages to get, get rid of it, but if you can't, then they are, you get yourself... Um, uh, armed with as many knowledge as possible of what are the possible ways for you to prolong that one and a half years. Mm, Which Dr. Jennifer really covered quite comprehensively in our show today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Jennifer Leong, consultant, clinical oncologist, my co-host, Dr. George Lee, um, consultant, urologist, and um, just a message for everyone to be safe if you're driving back to vote and happy voting tomorrow. Indeed. Yeah. Don't forget. Yeah, that's right. Don't forget if they come to you with an inked finger, they that's get a free right. PSA <laughs> test. Yes, yes. Or join a free yeah, clinical yeah, checkup yeah. as well. Remember the free clinical test also comes with a free clinical digital rectal examination. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't scare them now, George. <laughs> but All right. No, no, no. Yeah. But you know, majority of time, a simple blood test is something that you need and vast majority of time it will turn out to be normal and you can breathe a sigh of relief. So you heard that. Um, Go show Dr. George your inked finger. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.